Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. We're in the second week of five weeks on Christ-centered worship, a theology and philosophy of worship. And today we're focusing in on the idea of God-focused worship in John chapter 4. John 4 is really a beautiful exploration of what it means to reach someone with the gospel and how God uses the gospel to call worshipers to worship the triune God. We'll see this central idea this morning that true worship is captivated by the glory and grace of God. True worship is captivated by the glory and grace of God. It's empowered by the Spirit of God through the sacrifice of the Son of God to the glory of God alone. If you have your Bible, I invite you to follow along with me as I read in John chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 7 and read down through 26. Uh, John 4, 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to her, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. One thing this passage reveals to us is that there is an unbreakable connection between the gospel and worship. John 4 illustrates this perhaps more vividly than anywhere else uh, in Scripture. The gospel rescues sinners. People who apart from God's grace would perish in their sin and rest under the judgment of God. But not only does the gospel rescue sinners, it calls sinners to worship. It calls worshipers. And we see that in the life of this woman today. Now, as Jesus approaches this woman, he is traveling through the nation of Israel from south to north. 
in Israel. The south is kind of the metropolis, the populated area around Jerusalem and in the region of Judea. Jesus has been in Judea, and now he's traveling back to his home area of Galilee, his hometown of Nazareth and the surrounding areas, Capernaum being kind of his center for ministry there. Well, if you see on this map between Judea and Galilee is a region called Samaria. Now, it's kind of become uh, popular to think that Jews always went around. Sometimes they would, but Jews did hate Samaritans, but they hated long trips too, so most often they would travel through Samaria. But it didn't lessen their hatred of these people. Jesus is on the way through this town, and, and the Samaritan and, and Jewish hatred for one another is deep-seated. You see, when Israel fell in 722 BC, King Sargon, an Assyrian king, one of the ways that they prevented rebellion within areas they conquered was to take portions of that people and remove them somewhere else. They became exiles. They lived elsewhere. Well, 50 years later, a second Assyrian king, King Esarhaddon, brought in other people to live in this area. These people become known as Samaritans. They're mixed-blood people. They eventually intermarry with Jews, but they don't fully adopt Jewish religion. They adopt some aspects of it, and they're never fully accepted by the Jewish culture. In fact, they're always despised. So the Jews see this region as their own, but now it belongs to another people because their people have been forcibly relocated, become exiles, and they brought foreigners in now to live in Jewish lands. They've got deep-seated prejudice against these unwanted immigrants and all they represent. Well, Jesus walks into this region. They don't like him. He doesn't like them as a Jew. But Jesus' heart is different from other Jews, as we'll see. He comes to the well-known town of Sychar. You can see it here on the map. And he sits down at a well right in the center of town, and he encounters a woman. But this is not just any woman. This woman is a notorious sinner. God rescues sinner through a Savior who seeks sinners impartially. Now, there's everything about this woman that screams Jesus shouldn't talk to her. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, this is a quick statement, but it tells us a number of things rather quickly. Normally, women who go to get water go early in the morning or late in the day. Why? Because it's cool then. It's cooler early in the morning and cooler at night. And they would normally travel in groups either for uh, company or for safety. But this woman is there by herself. And she's there in the middle of the day, which tells us that she's an outcast among her own people. So to Jesus, there's already this distance, but even among her own people, she's on the fringe. She's not someone acceptable in any culture. Well, then Jesus breaks all protocol by speaking to her, verse 7. He says, give me a drink. Now, there are layers of problems here. First of all, this is a woman. Now, it's not as obvious to us today, but first century, respectable men don't speak to women in public because women aren't seen as affirmable publicly like that. They're viewed as dogs, outcasts. But not only is this woman, she is, uh, not only is this a woman, she has a second strike against her. She's a Samaritan woman. Jews hate Samaritans. And thirdly, she's a notoriously immoral woman. The fact that Jesus speaks to her in public opens him up to the accusations that he's being flirtatious or promiscuous. Imagine you saw 
your pastor or one of your deacons out downtown talking to a promiscuous woman. Verse 9 tells us the woman knows this shouldn't be happening. How is it, she says, that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan, a woman of Samaria? Then John adds, in case it's not clear, a note of explanation, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They don't talk to each other. Now, Jesus has all kinds of reasons not to reach out to this woman. Yet he does reach out in love without prejudice, without regard for how others will view him for doing this. And we know that it costs him because a few chapters later in chapter 8, the Jews called Jesus a Samaritan. Guilt by association. Yet Jesus is a Savior who seeks without prejudice. And when he comes to sinners, he satisfies without limit. Jesus is a Savior who satisfies sinners eternally. He satisfies sinners eternally. Now, Jews think that whatever this woman touches becomes unclean. But Jesus' power is such that what he, the Son of God, touches actually, even though it be unclean, becomes clean. Jesus hints at this in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, Leviticus 23 tells us about an important feast in the history of Israel. It's sometimes in Scripture called the Feast of Tabernacles and other times called the Feast of Booths. Well, the significance of this is that as God's people left Israel and began traveling through the wilderness, they couldn't take their, their homes with them. And so they had temporary shelters, tents, or even sometimes lean-tos, booths that they would build in the wilderness. But the significance of this feast is that God's people are acknowledging that God himself is their shelter. God himself is their dwelling place, the one who keeps them in safety. The Lord is their ultimate protection. Well, for centuries now, God's people have celebrated this feast, the idea that God is their protector. Centuries later, in John chapter 7, Jesus stood up. On the last day of this feast, it's a week-long feast that Jews knew how to party, and he was there on the last day of this feast, and he stands up and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We've seen this illustrated in the life of Israel. This is a momentous statement. In Exodus 17 and in Numbers 20, twice, God's people were perishing for thirst in the wilderness. And God provided them water through a rock. And the moment Jesus shows up and he speaks these words, the people know, the prophets look forward to this day. The day when the water of God would flow fully and freely. Zechariah 13 predicts this. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So when Jesus says, out of me flow rivers of living water, he says, the one who satisfies is here. The one who can eternally refresh God's people is here. But the Samaritan woman doesn't track with Jesus. Now, She's from Samaria, but that's not why. I mean, uh, just a chapter before this in John chapter 3, Jesus meets with a very intelligent Jewish leader, Nicodemus. He explains to him that to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Nicodemus didn't get that either. So the woman responds. I mean, she's looking around. She's the one with the the water jug there. She says, "Uh, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, 
the well is deep. Where are you going to get this water? And then Jesus makes a remarkable statement. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will be in him a well, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the water flows from Christ and in us it it flows through us and becomes the same kind of spring. I mean, one of the frustrating things about life is that being good today doesn't mean you're good tomorrow. I mean, one workout does not Arnold Schwarzenegger make. You know what I'm saying? Like, you can eat well one day and step on the scale, it ain't going to make that big of a difference. You can sleep well one night, but you could be exhausted two days from now. You can take a drink this morning and this afternoon, you need water. I mean, imagine a world, I mean, if you're a parent, especially of young children, you know this, like imagine a world where you could sleep well, rest well for one night, and never need sleep again. I mean, think how much you could get done. You never get cranky. You're always perfectly rested. Yet that's exactly the picture that Jesus gives. To drink deeply at the well of Christ is to have eternal satisfaction. Never thirst again. Isaiah 55 compels us Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. The invitation is the same today. Come to the waters of Christ and receive him by faith. It's the hottest part of the day, middle of the day. This woman is carrying a heavy jug. A world where you never have to carry that jug again sounds amazing. I can remember as a kid, one of my jobs was to water our chickens and there wasn't a hose right there and so I'd have to fill a five-gallon bucket with water and there's nothing heavier in the world to an eight-year-old kid than a five-gallon bucket. A world where everything you do, all your bathing, all your dishes, everything in your house, you have to carry through town. I mean, this sounds unbelievable. So she says, sir, give me this water so I won't be thirsty and I don't have to come here to draw water again. I never have to carry this bucket again. She hears Jesus' words. She heard what he said. But she doesn't yet understand his message. So how does Jesus respond? Jesus loves sinners compassionately. Jesus suggests something now that reveals to us that not only does this woman not understand his words, she doesn't even understand her own heart. Verse 16, hey, go get your husband. The woman responds, kind of masking something Jesus already knows. I don't have a husband, but Jesus already knows. You're right, he says, in saying I have no husband. We've had five. And now you're living with another man who isn't your husband. I mean, our hearts are deceptive, so deceptive that we think if we don't admit our sin, then God doesn't know about our sin either. The woman makes a true statement, ostensibly true statement, I don't have a husband. Yet Jesus already knows her heart is far darker than she's letting on. She's a serial offender. Now Jesus' approach here is so instructive. When we're told that unless we affirm a person's sinful choices, then we don't love that person. 
Yet because Jesus loves this woman, he can't affirm her sin. Rather, he approaches her in love and then confronts her sin. Now, our efforts to reach those around us, the lost, sometimes even those in our own church community, tend to skew in two directions. On the one hand, we're tempted to take an exclusively accepting approach, as in if we're nice, if we make Jesus appear nice enough, then hopefully because the person thinks we're accepting them, then they'll accept Jesus. But this rarely works, and even if it does work, the version of Jesus that that person is accepting isn't the true Christ. But on the other hand, others of us kind of tend to hold the truth with a fist. It's in your face. We're going to hit you over the head with the truth, and you better accept it. Son, listen up. And, you know, just anecdotally, one of the ways just kind of this manifests itself is it seems to me that when we engage this way, when you know someone personally, interpersonally, face-to-face, we tend to be very accepting because it's hard to go through the awkwardness of a, hey, what you're doing is wrong and you need to repent. That's a difficult conversation to have. But on social media, we tend to be the opposite. We tend to be a beat you over the head. We, it's like, we'll confront you here because we got this echo chamber, we're all affirming each other, and our witness then is hid. But what we see in Christ is different. He is both clear and compellingly kind. He understands who the woman is. He affirms her dignity as a human being made in the image of God. But he also understands that she needs to be rescued from her sin. And so he confronts Uh, her sin. Now this passage is addressing us in at least two ways. Some of us need to conform our witness to the word of God. God's people for too long have conformed their witness to the culture around us. But God calls us to be conformed to the image of his son as revealed in his word. Some of us need to conform our witness to God's word. Some of it's, it's by actually speaking the truth. For others of us, it's by speaking the truth in love. But there is another group of people here. And those are people who aren't in a position to conform their witness because they're like this woman. Come here with a burden of sin. She hadn't yet realized her desperate need for Christ. As well, she, see, she had a form of religion, but she didn't truly know God. Perhaps the Spirit of God is revealing to you today that you need Jesus. See, the gospel is good news for sinners, but it doesn't stop there. God not only rescues sinners, he calls worshipers. In verse 19, the woman begins to see, sir, I see that you're a prophet. So she knows that Jesus can see things that normal people can't see, but she doesn't fully understand who Jesus is. So she responds, Jesus is having a conversation about repentance and worship, and she responds with a conversation about ethnic differences. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped here, and you say that Jerusalem is the place to worship. What we've got going on here is kind of in the midst of a larger conversation between Jews and Samaritans, and it's based ultimately on their view of Scripture. Jews accept Genesis through Malachi, so the entire Old Testament. Samaritans, on the other hand, accept only the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and this leads to an important difference in the way they worship. 
When is the temple built? Well, not till David and Solomon, who are after the Pentateuch. Well, the Samaritans don't accept that. They only accept the first five books of the Bible. So the woman and Jesus no doubt know Deuteronomy 12, verse 5. You shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. Well, this reveals to us a deep-seated debate between these people groups. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham enters the promised land, and after he enters that land, he builds an altar near Shechem. Now, Shechem is near Mount Gerizim. So when she says, on this mountain, she's referring to a place. In the Samaritan Bible, both times the Ten Commandments are given, God calls people to worship him there. And in their view, this place happens between, in a valley between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, and so they built their temple there. So they don't agree on where to worship. Yet this woman is similar to the Jews in that she hasn't yet understood that worship is ultimately about a person, not a place. It's about a person, not a place. God calls us to seek the glory of a person, not a place. Jesus deconstructs the idea of location-centered worship. Woman, verse 21, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So, the great debate, Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim, who's right? Nobody. So if worship isn't about a place, what's it about? Jesus answers this question in verse 22, you worship what you don't know. Now, we Jews worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. You see, worship and salvation are linked. We worship a God who saves. So to the Samaritans, Jesus says, you worship what you don't know. Well, what's he getting getting at here? The Samaritans could potentially know God, but they've rejected a large part of God's revelation of himself. So they don't know God because they don't know God's revelation of his own glory and grace. The Jews, on the other hand, worship, he says, what we know. Now, he is not saying here that all Jews will be saved. Because during his ministry, he calls out a whole bunch of Jews and Jewish leaders. Rather, this means that we find God in the true scriptures, in his word, as he revealed himself. He's making a similar, a similar case to what we saw last week in Colossians 3. That proper worship is driven by the word of God. Salvation is from the Jews. You see, the Jews received God's saving revelation. And then they become the vehicle through which God brings salvation to the world. The Hebrew scriptures reveal the saving purposes of God in Jesus Christ. The glory and grace of God are revealed through God's creative, revealing, redeeming work. Brothers and sisters, we don't worship a place, but a person. We don't worship according to a dead tradition, but according to the living, breathing word of God. We don't worship to save ourselves, but to declare the glory of the God who has saved us. See, our pride says, we don't need God. But God says, you can't live without me. Then Jesus lays out a beautiful statement on the purpose and nature of worship in verses 23 to 26 he calls us to worship that is centered on god have you ever been in a relationship that was hard to figure out as in the person always had 
something they were looking for, but they'd never tell you what it was. Uh, maybe you have a, a boss like this at work, where no matter what you do, it's not good enough, and it's, it's like the great mystery of your life to figure out what in the world is she looking for? What in the world does he want from me? Or maybe you've been in, in a relationship like this, you know, in your family. Like, they got expectations for me, and I have no idea what they're looking at. I just act like, what do you want from me? Well, the beautiful thing is that when we ask the question, what is God looking for? He tells us, verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Now, we all came here this morning looking for something. Some of us came here consciously looking for something. Others of us maybe unconsciously or unaware of what we're looking for. The woman went to the well looking for water. She's ostensibly thirsty. You may be here looking for some level of acceptance. Walking through life, feeling a little lonely and looking for a place where you won't feel so lonely. Or maybe you're going through life and you've got a mixture of questions about life or about marriage and so you're looking for practical help to life or marriage. Or maybe because life right now just feels odd, you're looking for some sense of rhythm and normalcy and showing up at the same place, same time, every week is a way to establish some sense of rhythm in a world that doesn't have any rhythm right now. But the most important question for us isn't what we are looking for. It's what is God seeking? True worship asks the question, who is the king of glory? And like the psalmist answers, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. If our worship is boring, it's not because God is boring. It's because our hearts haven't been clearly captivated by the beauty and grace and glory of God. It's because we don't truly know the character of our God. You see, the time for worship at the temple has ended. Verse 23, the hour is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Well, where does that kind of worship come from? It doesn't come from looking around. It doesn't come from asking what we're looking for. It comes from knowing the character of God himself. The Father is seeking these kind of worshipers because the God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. God is spirit. Well, what does this mean? Well, you, my friends, are fleshly. Now, I don't mean sinful. I mean corporeal, body. Like, if you touch yourself, there's something there. There's a flesh component to us. Now, Jesus in the incarnation, just like that. Incarnate, in flesh. But God is spirit. Well, what does it mean to be in spirit? Well, a chapter earlier, Jesus has a conversation with Nicodemus. He talks about being born again, but he also then says, if you would enter the kingdom of God, you must be born of the water and of the spirit. Well, how do you know the spirit? That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel, Jesus says, that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you can't see where it goes, or hear it, but you hear it sound. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So what's Jesus saying? Well, how do you know the wind? How do you know there is wind? You hear it sound. You look in the trees and you, you see it moving leaves. In other words, you know the wind by its effects. 
We can't hold the wind or grasp it or fully comprehend it, but we see what it does as we see it move and we hear its sound. In the same way, God's Spirit gives life to sinners. It renovates our hearts. We see its effects. Now, I want you to imagine with me this morning that you're not sitting in this building, this house, but rather you're sitting in my house. And as you look around my house, you'd see something like this. You see, as we travel through our house, there are little bits. Now, you can see here a mantle. Now, hanging from this mantle are some pieces of paper. We'll give you a little clearer view here of, of one of our windows. Now, I got to say, our mantle didn't look exactly like that this morning. It looked a little bit different because as I looked at it last night, across this mantle are three different pictures of dinosaurs, a T-Rex right in the middle. Well, how do those get there? It's not because Liz is going to, I don't know, a local shop and finding this art and hanging it up in our house. You see, our little dude can go through a roll of tape faster than you can imagine. He is constantly cutting, taping, rolling, coloring. It doesn't matter. And then randomly around the house, these things go up. Back yesterday morning, we came down our stairs, and two different and fresh pieces of artwork were there. Well, I never, I don't know when this happens. It may happen from, you know, 2 to 4 a.m., because I never see it go up. But I know when I walk in the door after work that Jose has been to this window. Why? Because I can see what he's done. I can see the effects of Joseph on our house. I don't walk in and think, man, Liz was busy today. I walk in and I think, Joseph's at it again. Because I know Joseph by his effects in the same way we see the effects of the Spirit of God in the life of his church. At the least, this means we see the fruit of the Spirit in worshipers. And the Spirit of God always works through the Word of God. We must worship in spirit and truth. In other words, to worship in spirit is to worship in truth, and to worship in truth is to worship in spirit. Or you might say it this way, that true worship is god trans Trinitarian worship. In light of the God who made all things, the Spirit who lives in God's people through the blood of Christ, empowered by the Spirit through the sacrifice of Jesus to the glory of God alone. You see, if our worship is a gathering, but it's not captivated by God's glory and grace, it's not true worship. It's an activity masquerading as worship. We can get together, we can have a good time. We could even leave a little happier, a little encouraged, yet not worship. God's people are joy-filled people, but they're serious about the gospel and about God and about the worship of God. The close to this conversation between Jesus and this woman is remarkable. Verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah is coming. Like, I'm looking to the future. When he comes, he's going to tell us all things. Jesus said to her, you're looking at him. I who speak to you am he. You see, the only way to worship God truly and be satisfied in Christ eternally, is to come to God through faith in Christ. It may be that you are a lifelong member of Ashley River Baptist Church, or some other church. It may be that you've long considered yourself a good Christian person. You may have identified as a Christian your entire life, yet never seen that you're not truly good. 
And like this woman, your greatest need isn't some form of religion or morality that feels Christian, but rather losing yourself and running in complete dependence to Christ for salvation. Jesus said, I didn't come for the righteous, but for sinners. Sometimes we ask the question, is Jesus in you? Or we may phrase it this way, have you asked Jesus, have you accepted Jesus into your heart? And scripture does present that picture of accepting the gospel. But much more frequently, the New Testament writers address, are you in Christ? In other words, if Christ comes in us, that's one picture, but are you in Christ? Can Christ be seen in you, and are you living your life in Christ? You see, the saddest thing would be for an earthly worshiper to miss that heavenly worship service. That one where all of God's people are singing together in different languages around the throne, saying, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive worship and honor and glory and power. And on that day, to look around and the people sitting here, some of them aren't standing there. You say, you may be a lifelong attender of worship services and yet not be a true worshiper. You're here this morning looking to that rhythm, looking to some sort of external trapping. If you have not been honest before the Lord about your sin, would you please turn from self-dependence and trust Jesus today? The stakes are eternal. God is calling people from every tribe, language, people to be worshipers of the one true God. But the only people who will be worshiping on the God on that day are those who know God through faith in Christ. And how do we know when that happens? It's like the wind. You see the effects of it in our lives and in our life together. Let's take a minute now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.